Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have um, a very interesting founder, you know, a founder that, you know, has been scaling, you know, companies, you know, for, for quite a bit, you know, has done it multiple times. And I think that we're going to be learning a lot about law firms too. So legal tech, you know, it hasn't really experienced a lot of disruption, you know, in the past years, but I think we're going to learn a lot about this today. So I guess without Father ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ruben Moskovitz. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. Excited to be here today. So originally born in South Carolina and then moved to Brooklyn. So tell us a little bit about those years. <laughs> so so the South Carolina years, I, I don't have that much recollection about. Um, sometimes when I go through security and, and they look at your passport, they're like, you're, you're not really from there, are you? Um, so the, those first years, my 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 family, uh, my parents, both both were immigrants. Um, came came to America when they when they were pretty young. Um, found their way. My dad was was doing residency in Jacksonville. Ended up settling in in South Carolina. Uh, when I was little, when I was a little kid, we moved to Brooklyn. That's where we had a lot of family. Um, so yeah, basically, all I remember is is really the Brooklyn. We heard a lot of the stories from from the South growing up, but. Pretty much uh, raised and, and grew up in Brooklyn. And very interesting story as well from your parents. So both immigrants. And, and I understand that, you know, they, they met here in, in the U.S. You know, your, your father was also, you know, went through a lot, you know, with the Holocaust and, and all of this. So could you tell us, you know, as well what you learned, you know, like from, from you know, because having parents that came here that really did it for themselves, I'm sure that that really, you know, like made you know, a lot of, of who you are today, you know, and the way you see things. Yeah, that's, it, it's, it's, it's true. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to really think about that kind of scenario where you really have to start with nothing. I, I think about that a lot. And I've obviously been so fortunate to have a lot of a head start where, where people like, like my dad who came here, um, came over when he was two years old on, on, he used to talk about the boat, the Queen Mary, his family was very much affected by, by the Holocaust, my grandma grew up in Auschwitz, and sort of that was that was the, that was the environment I was brought up in. We used to go to my grandma all the time. She would talk about her parents who were killed, her siblings who were killed, um, uncles, aunts. I mean, this is sort of that that survivor kind of mentality. But actually, being able to do it, and I always think about my my dad being able to 
pull himself, go to college, being the oldest in his family, the first one really out of his whole, entire family, going to college, going to medical school, building a family. And my mom's similar kind of background too, um, was from Tlemcen, Algeria, a, a small place in, in, in North Africa, had to leave there, some per- persecution, it just wasn't a place where, where uh, you know, they were sort of welcome, ended up in France, also went to medical school, came to, came to America, met my dad. Um, and, and settled down in South Carolina. And it's sort of just been this, this idea of perseverance and self-starting and, and really being able to make something something with nothing. So uh, that, that sort of has always been an inspiration and it's always sort of set the foundation how really anything is possible. And that's just the, the, the mentality of just, if you want to get something done, just do it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I'm sure that, you know, these were, you know, like kind of like the building blocks for you to really, you know, go later and and become an entrepreneur. So why don't we why don't we talk about this? Because very early on, you know, you started, you know, like with with some projects, and and the first one here was one receipt. So why don't you tell us about this one? Sure. So so one receipt was was a simple, really a simple idea, and sometimes that that's really all, all, all you need. And and sort of the, the differentiators between the people who do things, it's not always it's like oh wow, you know, that was so genius. How many times do we say, hey, I thought of that idea too. Um, so it was really one of those kind of stories, and maybe that helped build the confidence later on to say, "Hey, by the way, it doesn't have to be that that complex of it. It really has to do with whether or not you get started and get it going." Um, so a, a buddy of mine is somebody I'm still very close with. I had this idea for a receipt aggregator product where you'd be able to get a better sense for for what you were spending on, as opposed to getting, say, five hundred dollar statement from Amex, like what, what's behind that? How much were you spending on coffee or home supplies? And it was really in the early days of, of getting those financial reports. And, and, and we had this plugin that we created uh, for, for email. We had the sync and it would give you some pretty rich analytics in terms of what you were spending. We found some other founders who had this similar idea, brought these two guys together also. And we started this company called One Receipt. Pretty soon after, we sold the business to a company called Ebates, which does a lot of the online promo codes. Um, those two guys stayed on board. Interestingly enough, one of those guys I'm still close with, and he's actually with us today at Litify. So it was first. It was sort of the first taste of getting involved in technology and sort of the pace of, of, of what you could accomplish in technology, and also the idea of really being able to execute and, and be accomplished. Um, so that that was that was sort of the first project that, that I started with. And how old were you? Um, I was probably 22 at the time. Wow. That's, that's really, really impressive. So, so then after this experience, you know, like during the, the, you still in college and, you know, you kind of like seeing what's, what's going to be the future looking like you started to, to get some exposure to law firms. So tell us about this. Yeah. Uh, so a, a close, a close friend in the family, um, was a lawyer and sort of said, hey, I need some help at, 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 at my firm to really build it out. I have some ideas of, of how we could scale the business from a customer acquisition standpoint, from an operation standpoint, really could use somebody to come on and, and help execute some of this. Um, it's, you, know, you said something so interesting in, in the opening, which is you don't really hear a lot about legal technology. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. Um, why is it that, that legal has sort of been slow to adopt? Everybody talks about it, but but what does that really mean that they've been slow to adopt, right? They're all using cars and, and emails and phones and, and sort of why is it? But I was brought on board at, at this firm here in Long Island. And what I, what I sort of noticed pretty quickly was 
that there was a complete fragmentation, not just within the industry, where there are so many different types of lawyers doing so many different types of law, there's sort, sort of no consolidation, but also on the platform side, on the technology side, you didn't really have an integrated solution. And that really was prohibiting and, and really holding this business, this law firm, this business back from being able to grow. Um, marketing campaigns, you really had no insights. You wanted to launch operating processes to communicate with clients. That was another system. Just it was very hard to do anything. And at the time, got introduced to Salesforce. And the funny thing is, I didn't, I didn't even know what they did. And if you would go to their website, it would say, generate more leads. So it almost looked like a lead gen company. I said, hey, this is interesting. I wonder what this is. Get on the phone with an AE and start reading about the platform. I'm like, this is unbelievable. The power of this extensible platform, you could really do a lot. I said, if I could just get this law firm on this platform, we could really scale the firm. And that, that hypothesis proved out to be true. We hired uh, some consultants, built out some some initial tools and and it was it was incredible to see how the firm was able to do something really special grow quickly um, really become almost a market leader in in the practice areas that it was and sort of that generated this idea where if you use some somewhat sort of available technology out there and approach it in in a pretty um, open way you could do some special things in legal so that was sort of the first time I got a taste where enterprise technology plus legal could have a major impact and scaling law firms. And I guess that this was a really nice um, you know, segue into, into what will become your next business. So tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, at, at the time, um, we I had this idea of, of, of doing something. I had, I had an uncle, actually, um, who, who was a little bit in, in, the, in the photo business. There, he was making plaques, um, so awards. So I had some exposure to, to photos and photo kind of businesses. Um, and, and it was right when the iPhone, it was around right when the iPhone sort of had a good camera coming out. And I said, Hey, you know, it's interesting. This is where people are going to want to print and create and interact with their photos. So start a business called Penguin that, um, essentially would be the, the, the photo business for, for mobile, mobile only business. There was a part of it, it was actually called MoFo. So the app, on, on, on iTunes and, and, and Android was called MoFo for mobile photos. Um, started that that business with the, with a, a couple of, of friends and and built that out pretty quickly to really the the, the market leader in uh, mobile uh, mobile photo, photo processing. Um, a couple months into that, we we sold that 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 business to Shutterfly um, with the idea to help accelerate their mobile roadmap and really transform that business from a, a web first company to a mobile first company. So sold sold the business to them in 2014 and, and joined them as as the director of mobile and sort of Very talk nice. about that 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 project that was an incredible experience and and just out of curiosity like how how did you ca- how did you capitalize this business um, raised some some family friends some we had a small institutional investor as well um, we we didn't raise that much um, we were pretty much a, a small shop we had about 15 people at the time. And why why did you guys decide to um, to sell the business? I mean, was it um, an inbound uh, uh, you know type of lead that you guys got from Shutterfly? Was it like a proper money process that you ran, or how did the uh, transaction come about? Yeah, I mean, we we, dis- we decided to sell. It was a great opportunity, both from from an exit perspective, but also to be able to work with what we believed could be something special to do something really meaningful and to transform not just not just this one business but the industry and, and today 
Shutterfly app is still out there and it's still generating uh, you know, a ton of revenue, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue on, on their mobile business. Um, and, and so it, it was an exciting opportunity to learn, to, to, to have an exit and to do something special. Um, in terms of how, how that, 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 that deal came about, um, we, were, we were starting to have licensing conversations with uh, HP, Snapfish, Walgreens pretty, pretty intimately. Um, and we had a, a friend, actually one of the investors, knew somebody um, who knew the CEO of, of Shutterfly at the time, Jeff Hausenbolt, mentioned something and, and about what we were up to. And Jeff said, this is, this is the place for Ruben to sort of do it. Um, connected with Jeff. And, and, and since then, I mean, from our first conversation, was just completely bought into his vision and how what we were doing together could, could be something special. Very cool. And obviously the terms were not disclosed, but I understand that uh, it was a 5x return for investors. So not, not bad at all. So, so Shutterfly, you know, obviously rocket ship uh, right now, it has like over 7,000 employees. But I think that you, you joined really at a time where the company was also experiencing a very, very good amount of growth. So, you know, what, what were some of the learnings that, that you got from, from this experience? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really. I, I would say it's one of the most. Um, maybe sometimes founders don't necessarily see that. I, I I certainly didn't early on. I thought it'd be great. Hey, you make some money. We're going to be at Charterfly, and it'll be it'll be you know fun. But the, actually, the learning of of having incredible uh, leaders around you and, and people like Jeff, I had a boss, uh, Ishanta Lacouge, Eric Weitzman. I mean, these were really experienced people. Um, who were able to teach me more than anything that, that I was able to, to make, whether it was around product strategy or patience or, or building, building specific proofs around data to, to prove out your theses and sort of not only trusting your gut and certain things like that, that was probably more, not probably, that certainly was even more valuable than, than just selling the business. Got it. So uh, jumping here to the, to the next question then, uh, you then decide to leave Shutterfly. Uh, obviously, you were here heading up their their mobile, you know, initiative. Uh, but but you make the decision to go into Colombia to study and become a lawyer. Tell us about this. Yeah. So um, part of part of the deal when I when I joined Shutterfly uh, was that that I'd be able to to start and continue my my uh, education at at, at Colombia. Always knew after that first experience um, at the law firm that I wanted to do something in legal and something to do with legal tech or legal operations. So I thought that would be a great time to uh, to do that and took took my LSATs again to Columbia. Um, just sold the company to to Shutterfly and um, figured I'm going to get my my degree um, at at Columbia. So was there for basically the same same period of time that that I was um, after I sold. The business Shutterfly, which was a three-year commitment to Shutterfly, and 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 at the same time had three-year commitment um, at, at Columbia, where which was was a great experience. And then after Columbia, you um, you started to think, how could I implement technology to legal? And you know, this time around, you know, it's saying you you meet someone that really changes everything. You know, the course for you. So so what happened next? Yeah, and and um, so, like John Morgan likes to say, life is luck, and and sometimes you create your own luck. But but as even as as much as as you want to do that, sometimes it really just is. And I found myself at, at, at invited to this event for lawyers. It was actually at in, in Puerto Rico, 
and didn't even even know why I, I would go there and sort of the people that would be there. Um, and, and the last night that I'm there, I, I meet this person. His name was John Morgan, who I'd read about. I'd actually read his book um, and, and, and heard, obviously, a lot about. And we started a conversation around law and, and legal technology and legal operations. And actually, the first thing I told John was, hey, you know, I read your book, which, which he obviously loved. And, um, and, and we started talking about a little bit what he had going on. And he starts articulating this vision that he had for his firm, which was the Google Law Firm. How could he take what, what at the time was the largest plaintiff firm in America, in, in the world, really, and scale that even further by creating a differentiated brand, but, but by putting systems in place to really take what became his brand and build on top of that into a large law firm. So we start talking about that and, and the opportunity to do that. Um, both for his firm and, and really even more broadly. And I said, this is sort of the, the idea that, that I've been thinking about, building a differentiated brand, but also building out a platform to take to other law firms to help them build their business. Um, so we, we agreed that this, this would be a great sort of partnership together. And I joined um, together with John about four years ago, a little bit over four years ago. And essentially what we decided to do was sort of incubate this, this idea um, at, at his firm where we would take the firm, move them onto a structured platform um, like, like Salesforce, and we built out the technology and the stack to do that. And sort of fast forward today, uh, the firm is, is, has about 3,000 employees, almost tripled in size, um, really has established itself as, as sort of the leader within that category. And it's, it's almost all because of these systems and the, the infrastructure that we put in place. Um, about three years ago, sort of about a year and a half after that, we took sort of those core concepts and spun it out to start Litify, which, we, which is this, this legal technology operating system, so to speak, that we call for law firms. And we'll talk about Litify in just one second, but I want to understand here because perhaps there is some lawyers, some former and recovering lawyers like myself. You know, like that, me, that please. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> I'm kind of like wondering, like, hey, you know, but, but, but what's going on in, in the law firms today? Why, why are they like, uh, they have like a dinosaur structure? And why don't you just tell us, like, what were some of these systems and what were some of the things that you, that you saw that, you know, perhaps you just saw that were completely off? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting and something I love talking about more than talking about those, those those other stuff about myself, that's that's not where I'm sort of comfortable. But what I get excited about talking about is is exactly your question. Um, what do we see in in legal technology? What do we see in legal uh, in law firms generally? And and I think and I think what the phenomenon is is that if you look at legal and legal service providers, lawyers, law firms, even if you take the largest firm that's out there, you don't see anybody with a an outsized market share, right? It's completely fragmented. And, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is that every matter, every legal matter, every issue that you want to hire a law firm for, whether it's to create some new rules or create contracts or help you understand something or help you enforce something or help you change the rule, whatever it is, every client and every matter is, is unique. But, but even more so, every lawyer, and it's, it's partially an, an ego thing, but it's partially that is what they're bringing unique to the table. Um, so there is such a nuance that goes into each lawyer and law firm that it makes sense for them to be different. It's, it's, like, it's not like just water bottles. Each one has something they're bringing unique to the table. 
And each one has something unique that their client needs to have addressed. So you have that phenomenon going on. Okay, so if, if that hypothesis is right, you're going to have fragmentation within law firms. You're going to have a lot of different lawyers offering different things and, and offering it differently. Um, forget about the pricing, but even how you communicate or what your strategy is or how, how you deal with your clients. So that, that you have on one side of it. And then we think about the technology to actually support that. That's why you see a lot of fragmentation around legal technology, too, because lawyers want the technology to support what their vision for their business is. And so what you see on the technology side is hundreds of different fragmented use cases, almost what we call now point solutions to deal with specific needs that a lawyer needs, a lawyer wants. So right. if one lawyer wants to do discovery this way, you'll have any discovery tool for that. They want their practice management done this way. You may have a tool to do that. And what you sort of created now is both an ecosystem of so many different types of lawyers and also an ecosystem with so many different types of technology, which is never really able to mature or evolve into sort of a sustainable long-term platform. Um, so that's sort of what you've seen historically within, within the space. Very, very interesting. So let's go back now to uh, Litify. So um, obviously Litify got incubated, you know, within this law firm. Uh, and then, you know, you finally go and, and go your own way. So tell us about this. Yeah. So when, when we started, when, when, when we started the, 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 the business um, about three, three and a half years ago, I mean, we, we always knew it would be something special. Um, if we could get it to work, if we could prove out the platform as being, uh, strong enough and, and solid enough to actually get get that one firm on, it would be something that we could actually change a, a broader industry behind. So we, we take that that thesis and sort of brought it to market and say, hey, are there other firms who would want this kind of technology, would want this kind of approach to helping them run their firm? And right out of the gate, we, we got a couple of early adopters saying, this is not only something I'll be interested in trying, but this is actually what I've been waiting for. We've been looking for something to sort of break the, 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 the chains of these other products that have never really been able to evolve, never really been able to integrate, and certainly don't set them up for, for long-term success and long-term scale. So first year, we go out to the market, find a couple of, of firms who are bold enough um, and maybe even willing to say, sort of say, you know what, we'll, we'll put our, our ego aside. Maybe they've built their own systems, some homegrown applications and things like that. And really bought into that vision, and we got them on the pl- on the platform, and they start seeing you know objective, demonstrable improvements to their operations, to their brand, to their scale, to the customer satisfaction, and things like that. So our first year selling, we, we sold about uh, three million dollars um, worth of uh, of licenses to the firms. Uh, last year we were able to double again, and, and this year we'll probably grow about another 120. percent So the, the 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 thesis around the platform, which which I'd love to get into, and, and why we think it's differentiated, why we think firms are really uh, excited about it, um, sort of started proving out itself right out of the gates. So what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money here? So we we're 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 a SaaS uh, business model. We we're we're built on top of Salesforce. So we leverage a lot of the the, the value that comes out of that platform from a security, from an architecture standpoint. And we build our own products on top of, on top of them. So we sell per license, uh, license per user per month. Got it. So who was the founding team of Litify? So founding team um, was John, John Morgan, who is uh, from, from the firm myself. Terry Dorman was, is, is our CRO now. 
Um, he's he's our, our CRO. He's, he runs revenue, comes from Salesforce. Um, Steven Mandel runs our product. Um, our CTO is actually the same CTO that I had at Penguin. So we were at Penguin, which we sold to Shutterfly. After I left to come start Litify, he went to Adobe, and about six months ago, he come back. He's come back now to to be our CTO. Got it. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. So then let's talk about the um, the early days of the business. You know, like obviously the the selling to to law firms. You know, probably is a beast because it's it's a long sales cycle. So so how how did you guys go about that? Yeah, I mean, selling selling to law firms is is hard. I think what makes what makes our approach um, probably a little bit more unique is that we sell to um, to managing partners of firms. So maybe take take a, a step back. So the, the the hard thing about legal is that it, it's it's super fragmented, but but on the same in, in the same respect, there are these pockets of lawyers who are very much looking to see what the industry is doing. So if you can get into a group of lawyers who sort of trust each other, respect each other, and are, are going to look to each other for advice, you could actually build some nice momentum within these pockets. So obviously with, with John Morgan initially, we were able to get a couple of firms on board, sort of break out into some other groups, prove success to their firms, and you can build nice momentum on top of that. Um, so so that's, that's, that's the first piece. Um, the second one is, is we try to we try to not we're coming at this from from both an efficiency and sort of an operational level. So obviously you have to get buy-in from the technology team, from the marketing team, from certain operational team. The lawyer is using the product, of course. But the other thing they were able to do is really sell directly to the managing partners of these firms. And and and, and sort of the, our approach is number one is automation, um, and number two is transparency. So those were the two key drivers early on so when when if you're able to have that conversation both with the end user saying hey we're going to make your life better but also hey managing partners or executive committee of these firms we're actually able to make your business better being able to do both of those puts us in a unique position absolutely and obviously for this you guys have raised quite a bit of money so how much have you raised to date um we've raised around 55 million between our our our, our seed rounds and and the series a and what a Series A! Tell us about this Series A. Sure. So we raised uh, fifty million dollars from from Tiger Global, um, which has been an incredible partner for 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 us and, and the whole company. Um, met with Scott Schleifer a few months ago, um, who saw immediately what 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 we were building and and sort of the the momentum behind us, but also somebody who really appreciated the opportunity. Um, one of the reasons why we raise that is is really to start capitalizing on that opportunity, both <clears throat> both organically, sort of continuing down within the vertical that we were we were currently servicing, and sort of broadening that out to service other types of law firms specifically. Maybe look at some other types of things within legal, like in-house counsel or governments and, and things like that. So there's tremendous opportunity there. Um, also accelerate <clears throat> our roadmap, our product roadmap. With specific feature functionality that we saw uh, a big market appetite for, and also to invest pretty extensively in, in customer success and getting our customers live. So together with Tiger, we sort of both aligned on what the vision and, and the opportunity is, and we really wanted to get there quicker. So having Tiger believe in that and, and bet on this um, was was an incredible uh, thing for us. That's amazing because typically for a business of this nature, what what are like the most uh, typical challenges? 
I think with, with any business, it, it, it's interesting. So product market fit obviously is, is sort of what, what you read about and, and I've always thought about. And it's a thing that I've always had the most anxiety about, which is you're going to build something. Is it going to work? Is, is, are people going to want it? Are people going to pay for it? And that makes obviously a lot of sense. And then the second question is, you know, how big is that opportunity? Or are you going to sort of get all the buyers and, and sort of you, you'll be done? And I remember always reading about these, these concepts Hey, where you have product market fit, there should still be other challenges like customer success or scale and things like that. And I, I remember even almost rolling my eyes at that, saying, "Hey, that's not a real challenge. You know, product market fit—that's a real challenge. You know, are you going to build something that people want to buy? But hell, once you have that, you know, it's it's easy. And turns out it's 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 not true. I mean, there's there's still obviously challenges, and specifically scale. And scale comes with with a ton of challenges. It's it's not just doing things at a bigger level or, or at a broader with broader impact. It's it's actually doing things differently from management to execution to how how you think about your clients and really about focus and priorities. All changes, um, and that's been sort of the, what we've been going through. You know, last year this time we had about forty employees. Now we have about one hundred and forty employees. So dealing with that culture, you know, these are things that maybe I'll, 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 I'll admit, maybe I sort of didn't pay attention to, you don't think that those are the things that matter. And sort of as, as you mature a little bit, those are actually the things that matter the most. Um, so that, that's been, been sort of the evolution of how we think about growing the business and focusing on the business. And, and also how, how do you go about, I mean, you, you were just touching on this. I mean, 200% growth in the last 12 months on the employee count. So how do you go about culture? Yeah, I, I think the, the answer is, is is be deliberate about it. Um, early on, I don't think co companies that have 15 employees or 50 employees, I mean, you really need to think about it. Either you have it or, or you don't, meaning either you're good to your employees, you bring a good energy to, to the workplace, you treat your people well and you're generous with them and, and you, you honestly look to have a good time every day. And I used to think about how lucky we are sort of when we were a smaller group you know, that, that everybody here is going to laugh out loud at least once a day. And then as you get bigger, you have to be a lot more deliberate about that, not just because there are more people and it's harder to touch everybody, but also then you start thinking about things like remote workforce or people that are, are sort of put into different offices. We have an office now in New Orleans. Um, so it, it becomes a lot harder. And, 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 and the second part that becomes hard about that is, is you sometimes have great, great team players, but maybe they're not great managers. And then that becomes the dynamic where you want to sort of give people the opportunity to, to develop their career and maybe get promoted, but, but they're really not great managers and, and sort of how do you bridge that gap? And sometimes you have to make hard decisions in doing that. And that also affects culture. So I think that the answer really is you have to be deliberate about it and it doesn't come naturally, especially maybe to some founders, but, but certainly when you think about the evolution of a company where you really don't need to be deliberate about it early on, either you have it and, or, or you don't, but even when you have it, you have to really start being deliberate about that. And talking about evolution here, Ruben, uh, you know, the, the journey is not a straight line, you know, as we know, founders, uh, and, you know, I guess looking back, what would you say has been the hardest moment for you? And probably that moment that came with the most amount of, of, of learnings. <laughs> Yeah, it's no, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a straight line. And, and, and sometimes, I mean, not, not even close. This is one graphic I love and, and you could probably Google it where, you know, people think it's like the beginning and you see the, the bike with a line all the way up and what it really is, there are pits and there's, 
there's there's ups, there's downs, and there's real big downs. And sometimes when you're, you're down, um, you know, you don't even realize that that's just the beginning of going down. You're about to sort of accelerate down, and you accelerate all the way up. I think I think a couple a couple things. Um, one is, um, and just before I answer your question about some of those tough moments for 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 me. One is one thing I always say, I probably say this sometime at least once a day, which is if it was easy, everybody would do it. If it was easy, everybody would do it. I mean, I said it this morning to somebody on, on the sales team, I said, Hey, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And, and I, and I really believe that. And, and sort of, it goes back to our earlier conversation from, from my dad and sort of the, the, the upbringing. If you really look around and you see, you know, what differentiates the people who who do it and the people who don't do it, it's it's one thing is that they did it, and sort of you know those obstacles they'll come. And again, if it's if it was easy, everybody would do it. Um, you know, just specifically to your question about some of the hard things, the hard things have, have really been about around people where you're sort of faced with the situation where you want to believe this person is good because. Number one, getting rid of somebody is hard to do. It's the hardest thing you probably have to do. And number two, you have to then focus on replacing them and recruiting, which is another really hard thing to do. And then you have to also focus on the rest of the business that's dependent on that group. And then being honest with yourself that, hey, if this is something that you're going to have to do, do it sooner rather than later. Those are some. Those are probably two, two that happened to, to us at least twice here at Litify. Um, Probably both times I should have made some of those decisions a little bit faster, either putting somebody in different roles and, and again, dealing with what, what would be inevitable. And, and those are sort of hard things that you hope you get a little bit better at and sort of predicting them, but also dealing with them and addressing them. Yeah, that actually reminded me of, of you know, with one of the companies when I was, when I was starting out, um, there was a you know, an employee that I just, I just loved, and, uh, but the employee was not delivering. So I, I tried to put that employee on, on other roles, and I just saw the employee, you know, again, failing and failing. And that, at the end of the day, just creates um, a bad environment, you know, for the culture of the business. Rather than giving the employee, you know, like the, the benefit of going and, and getting another job, you know, where he or she is going to succeed at, you know, I just continue to delay that process. So have you also experienced that or, or have you seen that as well? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, you hit it right on. I mean, it's, that's, that's such a hard, that's such a hard thing. Um, it's such a hard thing. And especially when you're, when you're trying to grow a business and you have to make quick decisions and maybe you're, you're even built that you don't have that patience necessarily. So you're, and if, and it, you sometimes it makes you feel bad. Sometimes I feel bad. It's like, well, if I had a little bit more patience or I had a little bit more time, I would coach the person and, 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 and sometimes at a startup, especially you don't have that luxury. You really don't have that environment to be able to, to do that. So it's hard, you know, you try to get justified by saying, well, if the person's not going to be successful here, they, you know, they're not going to be successful. So may as well let, the, let it happen sooner. So you know, those, those definitely are the hardest parts, especially of, of a startup. And, and, you know, it may be even a little easier in the situation that you talk about where it's an employee who's failing. I think that it's just as challenging and probably even harder work. An employee is doing well, but that group or department needs to scale. And now it needs to operate entirely differently. And so it's almost like the analogy where you're going to build a basketball team. So, you know, you hire a crew to, to build out the stadium and, you know, you got all the pieces there that they lay the wood, they got, the, you know, everything is getting done. And on the last day, there's a painter there just putting on the finishing touches 
and you're thinking about starting, you know, you're starting five. You need, you need people to actually play on the team. You, you can't just point to the painter and say, hey, you know, you helped build us all the way to this point. You're going to be point guard. Of course not, right? There's just a different skill as the business evolves. So even somebody who's done a really good job as their department needs to collaborate differently, as the role of their department, or maybe it's a failed investment. It was an, a sort of a moonshot kind of project. Being disciplined to say, okay, this person is not going to be able to be a manager. Now what do you do? That That's a really, really hard hard part of, of scaling. For sure, for sure. And and I would love to get your thoughts on this. How, how do you see the um, legal tech really evolving? Yeah, I think I think it's it's really comes down to two things. I think companies that are going to be successful have to be able to do these two things: one, integrations; two, and be extensible. And 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 what that means is, we believe that that integrations is 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 the prerequisite for having any automation and having any transparency. So the more the more of these tools that are being generated, or the more of these tools that lawyers are relying on, again because they're all unique, they all have sort of their fragmented approach in their own subtle way to deliver their service to sort of their unique clients. You have to have one place for sort of an operating system to pull it all together. So now the firm can have some automation, which means when you think about automation, it doesn't necessarily mean AI, but it does mean efficiency, which the clients could benefit from. But I think more importantly, automation means predictability. You could create the system and process and you need integration to be able to do that. So predictability, automation, and two, transparency. The more disparate systems you have, the harder it really is to, to have that transparency. What's really going on at your firm? What's really going on with your client? What's really going on with the service you're delivering? That's number one, so integrations. And number two is extensibility. Firms need both the ability to embrace what makes them unique on whatever platform they're on and drive that uniqueness through the platform. But also, they don't want to be locked into an approach or a practice area or a specific paradigm forever. And a lot of the systems that have been sort of traditionally created, whether they're on-prem legacy platforms or sort of these point solutions, they've been super rigid. They said, okay, lawyer, you want this? You want to be able to do X, Y, and Z? Here you go. Done. And, And that's really limiting when you think about even the needs you have today because, well, let's say that evolves tomorrow. Let's say a client comes in with something a little bit different, a little bit more nuanced, or I want to move into a practice area that's going to be significantly different, or I want to be able to scale my team, without that extensibility, you really don't have a product. You really don't, you're really not a technology company. And it's sort of a theme that, that I think about even out of legal, which is what differentiates any business from being a technology-first or technology-driven business from a company that's not. And it's not if they're using technology. It really isn't because Again, you could have a law firm or any business where the person is using email, they're on Slack, they're on Twitter, they're, they have a social, you know, they're doing all of those things. They're driving to work in a Tesla. I mean, right? That's technology. Yeah. I think the, the biggest differentiator is whether or not when a business wants to make changes to grow, to improve, the first place they turn to is their platform. If the first place you're turning to is the tools that your employees, your staff, your team is using to implement those changes, to make sure that they're being adopted, then you could say you're a technology company or a technology-driven business. So that's what I think is going to differentiate technology, legal tech companies that sort of are going to scale and thrive and sort of the ones that are just going to be, okay, these are just features and sort of we don't need that. They're just not going to be able to help our business move forward. Very interesting. 
Uh, and one of the things that that I typically ask the guests that we have on the show is, you know, here here you are, you know, you've done this multiple times. Now, obviously, this is like one of your biggest challenges and, and most exciting journeys now with, with Litify. Uh, but knowing what you know now, uh, Ruben, if you had the opportunity to go back in time before you were about to launch that uh, first business, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to yourself before launching the business and why? Yeah, I, I think if, 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 I had to, if I had to pick one thing, it would be saying no. Um, the, 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 the power and importance of saying no. And it's, 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 it's maybe hard to articulate, but being a founder, you have to be completely, maybe a little bit crazy because you have to be unlimited optimist, completely unlimited um, optimism. You have to have an unlimited amount of optimism, right? You have to be super hopeful. You have to believe, you have to dream and, and really think that anything is possible. And, and that's, that's obviously number one. You have to believe anything is possible and that you could do it. <clears throat> but at the same time, you also have to be disciplined and focused enough to say, even if it is possible and even if it's a great opportunity, maybe that's not the biggest opportunity and maybe that's not the biggest area of focus. And being able to say no while also being, again, completely optimistic and completely basically believing that anything is possible, that's that's a hard balance. And and I still don't think that that, that I'm I'm there perfectly. And and maybe you never could be because I'd rather sort of uh, overbet on on being optimistic. But but being able to do that and, and I think you read some of these the founders and, and definitely some of the great ones, they talk about ruthlessly prioritizing, um, focus and and and, and, and I think looking back, there were certain opportunities that I, I saw and, and they, they may have been great opportunities, but if I would have said no to them, I would have been able to double down on some opportunities that I thought were for sure that I know were, were bigger opportunities. So being able to say no while being also feverishly optimistic is, is sort of the, the one thing I would, I would go back and, and tell myself. Got it. Well, man, I'm I'm glad you said yes to this interview. <laughs> so, Ruben, for the for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Ruben at litify.com is is the best way. Um, lo- love speaking, love love listening to to other people and, and and their perspectives. So, really appreciate this this opportunity. It's r e u v e n at litify.com. Um, shoot any any questions, any thoughts, any feedback if. if Especially if you think I'm wrong about something, that's that's what would help me the most. So, um, again, appreciate appreciate you having me. Amazing. Well, Ruben, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So, also remember that if you need any help whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.